And we welcome you to the Tuesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We are off to an amazing place, an amazing island, about seven miles off the coast of Ireland, if I understand correctly, the location of Skellig Michael, an island that in some respects is among the most famous islands uh, in the world. It is not a small island, but very striking in appearance. And as a matter of fact, much of the world came to know Skellig Michael because it was utilized in the filming of uh, the Star Wars film in, in 2014. And uh, so a lot of eyes have seen Skellig Michael because of that. But we can get to know this uh, remarkable and beautiful place courtesy of a book that is just being published in America called Returning Light, 30 Years on the Island of Skellig Michael. And uh, my morning show guest is the author of the book, Robert L. Harris. And uh, he simply answered an ad and took a job on Skellig Michael. And uh, in some ways, much to his surprise, ended up returning to Skellig Michael year after year after year over the course of more than three decades. And uh, the experience of living and working on this particular island that is the story told in this uh, lovely book published by Mariner, again titled Returning Light, 30 Years on the Island of Skellig Michael. And Robert L. Harris joins me now on The Morning Show, actually speaking from Skellig Michael through the wonders of modern technology. Robert L. Harris, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be able to speak with you. I'm standing in a little hut on the island, and it's blowing a gale outside, so if you hear the wind behind me, that's what you hear. Absolutely. And we should say that uh, you answered that ad uh, in the Kerryman back in 1987, and in those early years uh, when you worked on Skellig Michael, uh, there was no such thing as... Uh, well, there was no such thing as a cell phone for most people, but even if there were, there would have been no service available. And uh, so the means by which you have communicated has changed over the years. Yes, indeed. It's changed dramatically. And uh, there is a bit of Internet coverage now. There's cell phone coverage. And we have more of a connection with the outside world. Uh, it has changed. Uh, I certainly... Uh, found it um, bracing and invigorating in the old days when we didn't have that that communication. And I think in some ways it prepared me for living here uh, in a certain way because it made me depend on resources that I might not have uh, otherwise acquired or knew that I had or, or knew that most people have, I suppose, uh, and, uh, and taught me to... I suppose, in a way, try to try to communicate or at least understand in a different way than the normal normal chains of connection. Uh, Skellig Michael is sometimes called simply the Rock, and my understanding is that first part of its name, Skellig, 
means splinter of stone. What about the Michael part of the name? Well, Michael is, is from the dedication to St. Michael, and uh, there was a, a very strong cult of St. Michael in uh, the medieval period here in Ireland. And to put it briefly, uh, in Scripture, Michael is, uh, is the leader of the angelic hosts. He's uh, a warrior figure, and these monks that lived here long ago considered themselves to be spiritual warriors, here at sort of the front line of things, out at the very edge of what would have been known as the edge of the earth back in the 6th century. And so they, they dedicated it to St. Michael as their protector. Hmm. Before we talk about the island and your experience of living on it and working there uh, over these many years, uh, I think it would be interesting for our listeners to learn a bit about your own intriguing life, even ahead of the beginning of your experience on Skellig Michael. Uh, For instance, where you were born and where you spent a lot of your childhood and where you received your education. Uh, Give our listeners whatever background you think will be helpful for them. Okay. Well, I have kind of a, a rambling history for the beginning of my life. I was actually born in South America. Uh, both of my parents were from the United States. They were from the Southeast. And um, so I spent a little bit of time there when I was in grade school. And, uh, but then my parents moved, and we lived by the sea again in the Caribbean. And when I came to go to university, I spent some time over in Scotland again by the sea, so I was used to being by the sea, and I met my wife there, who was from Ireland, and we, we moved over to the northwestern part of Ireland. And that's where I've been based for, uh, since 1980, since I moved to Ireland and, and made it my home. And I've been working here, uh, down in the southwestern part, where my wife was originally from, uh, since 1986, since I answered that uh, the advertisement to come out and work on Skellig Michael at that time. Tell our listeners about that, what that ad was saying, and, and, and the position that uh, was open on Skellig Michael. Well, um, I, I had always been curious about uh, these remote islands. Like I said, I grew up by the sea a fair bit, and the idea of monks long ago putting themselves out in remote places in all traditions uh, and, and many other traditions besides the Christian one uh, seemed a very intriguing thing. Uh, and um, so when the opportunity came, uh, and also I had studied a, a, a bit of medieval history when I was in university. So when the opportunity presented itself, I was in my mother-in-law's house and just by chance i saw an old newspaper it was already a couple of weeks old with the ad sort of sticking out right there for me to to uh to look at it uh and they were uh the the irish government was was preparing to set up a guiding service and sort of a, a warden service on this island because previous to that since the 1820s it had been manned by lighthouse keepers but the lighthouses were being automated all around the coast of Ireland. And so um, a presence was required here because at the top of this mountain where I live, uh, when I'm here, there are um, 
invaluable ruins, or not really ruins, in a, in a way the little village is intact, of a place where um, a, a small community of Christian monks lived uh, 1,200 years ago on a little terrace sticking out over the sea. So it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's, uh, it's a place where many people come for all kinds of reasons. So obviously it needed protection. And as well as that, there are uh, hundreds of thousands of seabirds who come here uh, who are also protected. So a presence was required. And so I answered the ad, and really, literally, within about two weeks, I was here. Mm. Was this a decision that you arrived at easily? And I'm wondering also about uh, this decision in, in regards to your wife. I mean, is this something <laughs> yeah. in which she was going to be accompanying you to Skellig Michael? Well, that, that's interesting. Everyone always wants to know how my wife felt about this. <laughs> and, uh, of course, there is that old adage of absence makes the heart grow stronger. And uh, maybe our relationship has improved by periods of absence. She has been here plenty of times. Unfortunately, she couldn't come and, and live here with me. But particularly in the early years, uh, when our children were very young, uh, they came out often. And uh, I think it's become... Uh, it was already a part of her life, really, to tell you the truth. We had come to the island for the first time two years before. In fact, that's one reason I answered the ad, because my wife and I had, had come here and just felt very attracted, strongly attracted to the place. And um, so she was all for me coming here and for having a connection with the place. And I hope, anyhow, uh, at this late stage, 37 years later, that my family feels enriched uh, for the connection that it has had with the island. Hmm. At the time that you began working there, uh, what kind of a staff are we talking about of which you were a part? And I think that has changed a little bit over these intervening decades. Yes, there's, there's much more of a presence here. Now, when I first came, uh, there were two uh, workmen uh, who came out on a Monday morning and left on a Friday evening and, and helped to maintain uh, some of the, uh, of, of the monument here. And then just myself and one other person, another guide, arrived out. We really had no idea what we were facing uh, and um, arrived out to stay. So generally, particularly on, on weekends, or at least almost a third of the period, it was just myself and one other guide. And thankfully, uh, both of the people who I worked with that year have, have termed to be, uh, turned out to be very uh, amiable friends, and uh, we, have, we have worked well together um, over the years. Explain to our listeners kind of the season in which you find yourself on Skellig Michael. Uh, that is, it is not a place, I think, where you are the year-round. No, not at all. Uh, the Atlantic uh, can can come up uh, uh, in a very severe way in the wintertime, and there's only a small landing area here, and uh, it is often beset by storms. In fact, today, uh, no one can come out to the island. We have a southwesterly gale blowing out here, and the landing is unapproachable. And uh, just to give you an example, at the end of the year last year, we were set to leave in early October, and um, it was a bit of a, of a bad forecast in the offing. So we decided to bring that forward a couple of days, and it's just as well 
that we did, because after that, it was not possible to land on this island for a couple of months uh, until uh, around Christmas time. So it gives you some idea, hopefully, of just the nature of of of, of access here. It mm. is it is awful unpredictable. So we come out uh, briefly in um, in early May, hopefully around about that period, and stay until early October. And normally, I stay here. Uh, two or three weeks at a time, and then go ashore for a week. And we kind of rotate that way. Right. What you were just describing in terms of the day-to-day reminds me of one of my favorite passages uh, from your book, which is this. If the sea is rough, and I know that no boats are going to land that day, that can be liberating, because then I know I've got time to myself. So in other words, for you, uh, you, at least to some extent, or at least in some respects, welcome days like today when you know no tourists are coming ashore. I mean, at the risk of sounding maybe a little antisocial, I mean, there is something to be said. There is a silver lining to those days when uh, the conditions do not allow for anyone to visit. That's right. That is absolutely true. I enjoy meeting the visitors. You meet people here from all over the world, and you... Um, you, the, the, the place, it, it's such a tiny little rock, but it strikes people in many unusual ways. And it's, it's interesting, the things you learn about people out here. But it is also uh, interesting to spend time on my own here. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful place for, um, well, I wouldn't want to describe it as, as uh, you know, it's not, a, <laughs> it's not a holiday island, but it's a place where you come to understand your place in the world and in the cosmos in a way that perhaps a lot of people don't have the opportunity to. Hmm. At least I've, I, at least I have found that, and so I find it, it it valid to spend time here in that way. We're speaking with Robert L. Harris, the author of a book called *Returning Light*. 30 years on the island of Skellig Michael. And, of course, it's been more than 30 years by now that uh, you have spent uh, long portions of the year uh, working on Skellig Michael. Is your official title steward? I am the supervisor guide here. That is my, that is my position. And basically what that means is I... Um, I monitor the access because people come and go down to the pier when the weather is fit and good, and it can be very fine at times. We've had a particularly good start to the summer. It's just that today is a very rough day. Uh, but then also I look after the, uh, the access routes on the island, but mainly I'm responsible when visitors come uh, for their safety and I'm telling them a little bit about the place. And so it's kind of uh, the job has many different aspects, but on a day-to-day basis, when the visitors aren't here, it's basically looking after the place. Hmm. Uh, describe to our listeners in a little more detail exactly how uh, Skellig Michael is laid out and just how small an island it is. And also, if you would, uh, describe the two peaks that, uh, that primarily comprise its landmass. Yes, well, it's, it, the island is, is eight miles off the coast, the southwestern coast of Ireland, off County Kerry. And uh, it's the only rock on the horizon line except for its sister rock called the Little Skelligs. 
So when you approach by sea or when you're looking out from the mainland, you see these two dark pyramids off on the horizon. And they must have been interesting and appealing to people from prehistoric times because they're, they're very, very prominent on the horizon line. And uh, so they, they obviously were interesting because in early Irish lore, islands were places of spiritual importance. So these islands have draw, drawn people for, for millennia, really, even long before the monks came. But when you arrive, there are two peaks, as you said. And on the near peak, uh, near the top, the, that's the platform where the monks built their little community. And it's, a, it's an incredible place because literally they built up a dry stone wall into the air and terraced it and put their little uh, dry stone beehives there, a little compact uh, place where maybe a dozen monks lived. And you access it by walking up the road from the pier along a road that was built in the 1820s to access the lighthouse. And then about a third of the mile, about half a mile up the road, you turn and start going up ancient steps that the monks built. And you go up 600 steps, really a vertiginous route. You feel as if the land is falling away to the right and to the left of you as you go up. And you arrive at the little monastery uh, on the easternmost peak. But then halfway up to that um, to that monastic platform, there's a little valley. Uh, and on the, to your left-hand side, on the western side, um, uh, as, you, as you arrive there, there's a higher peak, um, a much more difficult peak of access with no steps rising to the top. Um, and it's much more pointed, much more angular. And there are just handholes and toeholes that pull you up there. And up near that, that peak, there are ruins of a little hermitage where we think maybe one man lived alone or where solitary monks went up for individual prayer up to that peak. So it's quite a dramatic place. And at this time of year, it's filled with bird life. Hmm. There are tens of, tens of thousands of seabirds that are flying around these very colorful puffins and the huge gannets. So they make the, the rock seem very much a, a living place. Hmm. You pulled away from calling them ruins, that is, uh, the, what, what remains of that, that monastery. And, uh, and it sounds like, uh, or I'm guessing that one reason why you hesitate to call them ruins is because they are not nearly as ruined as we might assume them to be. Uh, tell us just how well-preserved uh, these remains are. Yes, they're, they're remarkably well-preserved. I mean, the monks came out to this island because they were looking for a remote place. They, they harked back to the desert fathers who lived in desert places in Egypt. They wanted to go out to a wilderness. And so because of that, the place is preserved by, by its remoteness for us today. And the sea, in a way, has kept the place in a little time warp. As I mentioned, you, you walk along a pathway built by lighthouse keepers in the 1820s, but then you turn and start going up the mountain, and you might as well be going into the 7th century because I'm sure it doesn't look all that different than it did when the monks find those steps. And when you get to the, to the monastery itself, it's remarkable how well-preserved it is. There have been collapses at different 
times over the centuries. And once you have an eye for it, you can see where dry stone walling has collapsed and been rebuilt. And the tops of the beehives in some places have fallen in uh, and had to be rebuilt. But a, a fair portion of the masonry of these structures has to be original and monastic. So you get a very, very keen sense of entering a different time when you go there. So in that sense, you can stand inside those little dark cells and feel very much a presence of earlier people living there uh, in a way that you don't in places that are reconstructed or places that are placed in, in sort of a different sort of surrounding that the modern world impinges upon. Right. There's a lovely passage in the book when you talk about how you can stand in a particular place in, in that uh, the remains of that monastery and think of someone being there, standing in that same spot more than a thousand years earlier. And you say, he, he had a whole different worldview than I do, but I do share some things with him because what I can see can't be all that different from what he saw. I mean, especially when it comes to things like the way the sunlight comes in through that window and the way that, 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 that room is, is illuminated, that uh, in a sense, very little of anything would be different in this moment in 2023 versus what it was like, what it looked like more than a thousand years ago. I mean, the thought of that is just breathtaking. Yes, that's, that is true. And um, I, it, never, it never really ceases to amaze me. Uh, and it's such an enriching experience for people. I mean, the way I, I think of it is I, I've been here a long time. I might possibly have been here longer than anyone has for a very, very long time. But on the other hand, my experiences also are shared by people who are just here and just walk into the place because you, you stand and you... You just have the horizons of sea and sky around you, and you look over at the coastline, but most times you really can't make out houses or roads. So those headlands and those cliffs look more or less similar to what they would have looked like when people were here long ago. And um, so you definitely share so much the basic things with people uh, who who lived here who made the big effort to come out here and of course i don't see the world exactly the same way but i have to share a lot of the things with those people just in basic physical requirements and needs and wants and desires and wishes and hopes those Mm. sort of things absolutely in the matter of light and light is something you write about a great deal in your beautiful book returning light I mean, the book certainly lives up to its uh, lovely title. Uh, You talk at one point about how the monks who constructed this monastery so long ago, is it the 7th or 8th century? I think we are actually a little uncertain on exactly when it was constructed, but that one imagines that they thought a great deal about light. And in a sense, I think at one point you talk about how these edifices were built to, in a sense, store the light or showcase the light in very special and beautiful ways. Um, Can you describe what you're talking about there? 
Yes. Um, well, I mean, I suppose I, 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 I and thank you for, for for reading the book in that way, because what you have described is, I, I think, very apt. Um, well, to give you a, a, a very clear example, there is a large cell when you first enter the monastery, and I was kind of fascinated by how the light was falling at different times of year in that cell. There are windows in, in this very large cell where the light is directed and where it falls on the floor or rising on the wall, depending on, on the time of day and the time of the season. And I was just fortunate enough to be thinking about that and thinking about light and other uh, edifices that I have been to, like large cathedrals and, and other places where it's important how the light falls. And um, early on in my years here, I realized that this light in late September at the time of the uh, equinox was, um, was, was rising up along near the doorway uh, on, uh, actually, if, if I can describe it accurately, falling through a window on the western side, a little window high up in the dome on the western side of the, of the cell, and falling across the dark cell and striking the wall and moving slowly up along the wall and entering a, a little pocket between two lintels directly over the doorway. Just at the time... Uh, in late September, which coincides with the uh, with the day, when the when the when, uh, at the time when the day and the and the night are are equal, and um, that was fascinating to me because I know that many other uh, sites in Ireland and in uh, in Britain, for that matter, have been constructed in such a way to showcase sort of astronomical events like that. And so, for many years, I I have looked at that situation and realized that this happens on a regular basis, that the sun rises right up along the wall and into that little pocket, we call it a light box in some cases, between two lentils at the top of the door, round about uh, the last week in September every year. And so I started thinking a fair bit about how, obviously, these things weren't put there uh, just haphazardly, there must have been a reason for for the the direction and the orientation of of all the structures there it 's just impossible for us to know at this you know great length of time having passed but um, the the monastery itself is laid out on the east western axis, and recently at midsummers, I was up at the sunrise and realized that far off to the east, the sun was rising over the sister island, the little skelligs, and the light was coming right in from the opposite direction into the cells. And when you're there, that gives you a very enriched picture of the dynamics of the place because you realize that these things must have meant a lot to people back then in a way that we're kind of... Um, I suppose we don't really have that exposure so much just to the outer elements as, as early people did. And I mean, that's kind of a cliche. Lots of people say that sort of thing. But uh, here you have kind of living proof of people long ago directing the light. What it meant is, is anyone's guess, but obviously it's something that they were, they were concerned enough about to include it into how they, they built their structures, how they directed the light. So no more than medieval people building a Gothic cathedral and, and it being built in such a way to capture the light, to hold the light. I, I think in some ways these people did something similar. Mm -hmm.
I love that. And I love the way you write about light at one point referring to the strange moving music of light. Uh, And one of my favorite passages in the book is actually when uh, you are not talking about light, for instance, streaming through a, a window in this old monastery or in some other way, but the way in which light interplays with the water. You write at one point, a pool of water would glimmer shimmering in silver. There was no other way to experience these things than to accept them as gifts, as the acquisitions of a spirit somehow emptied, at least temporarily, by its stay here. I'm wondering, uh, before you ever came to Skellig Michael, is that the kind of thing that you would have been apt to observe and deeply appreciate? Or did you only come to a capacity to appreciate such a thing uh, after living in a place like Skellig Michael for, for such a long time? Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe, a, maybe a bit of both. Um, I, I've always um, found, uh, found it very enriching to be in situations by myself uh, in exposed places. I've lived on islands before. I've lived on the coast of Ireland before I came here. And I share those, uh, those interests with my wife and with other people that I know. Uh, and I suppose it's been a, a feature of my growing up. But on the other hand, um, I definitely feel that my being out here has given me a completely different perspective on on that sort of thing and the importance it can have, how it can an appreciation of or perception of things like that can enter into yourself and they can be very much a part of you almost in a physical way. Um, and so uh, I think I, I wrote a bit in the in the book about, how a map of the place, uh, even though it's a small island, in a way it becomes possible to kind of map, map the island within myself. Uh, that's, that's, that's difficult to, to uh, terminology maybe, but I tried to, um, to write about that in the book and to explain that in a way, and I suppose it's not just myself, I'm only hopefully illuminating something that happens maybe for everyone, in their lives, depending on where they are and, and what sort of location they're in. But eventually, where you live becomes a part of you, and you carry it with you. And um, I think that's probably probably what I was trying to describe. Hmm. We're speaking with Robert L. Harris, author of Returning Light, 30 Years on the Island of Skellig Michael. Skellig Michael, just off the coast of Ireland, uh, an exceptionally beautiful striking island and uh, a, a place that has been one of Robert L. Harris's homes for, for more than, than 30 years. One of the intriguing things about the book is that you uh, help us appreciate the solitude that often is a part of, of being on Skellig Michael, particularly on a day like today, this day that we're recording this interview in which it is not possible uh, for anybody to, to visit the island. And, uh, and those are days in which uh, you enjoy 
a, a solitude that you not, otherwise might not. Let's just talk a moment about who visits Skellig Michael. Uh, my understanding is that there is uh, a fairly steady uh, progression of 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 different boats that are, in a sense, authorized to come and bring what I, I guess would be tourists coming to Skellig Michael on a fairly uh, regular basis. Tell us kind of the, the the scope of that, and 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 at least in general, how many visitors uh, you and your uh, colleagues are welcoming to Skellig Michael. Yeah, well, well, um, as I said earlier, we're here generally from from early May until early October, and over that period of time, um, on on some days of the week, it is possible to land here. On average, I would say about five days out of seven, if you put all those five months together, um, boats are landing here. Uh, on the island, and I go down in the early morning and have a look at the landing and and at the sea conditions and see can we open the island later on in the morning. And then, if that's possible, uh, we have uh, 15 boats that the Irish government allows to to travel to the island, and they can carry 12 each. So we could have 180 people here on a day uh, from maybe about oh, nine in the morning to about three in the afternoon. All kinds of people come here. And yes, a lot of them are tourists. The place has become much more on the tourist route, the tourist map, than when I first came here. When I first came, it was a, it was a day's experience to come to the Skelligs. Uh, the trip was probably about twice as long by sea as it is now, because now we have much faster boats. The boats were much more exposed. It was much more like the old, old days, I suppose, coming out to the island. And uh, when people came, they they made it a, a, a big journey. Some people even came and stayed in the area for a couple of days to make sure they could get here. Now, unfortunately, people have to book a long ways ahead of time because it is such a popular place. Uh, it's not impossible to, to walk down to the pier on Port McGee, eight miles away, and get a seat. But... It's, it's more likely that people would have booked. Anyway, um, a lot of people are, are coming here because they realize it's a very famous place and they've, they've read about it and it's possibly on their so-called bucket list and that sort of thing. But you find other people, too, who, who come for all kinds of reasons. And um, it, still rem- it still has a spiritual attraction for many, many people. And some people come because, I suppose, like myself, they're attracted to these dark rocks off on the horizon, and they want to come out and and just experience being here uh, and looking out at the the horizons, the sea and sky, the way people have from time immemorial. So there's quite a variety of people that come here, and it's really interesting uh, sometimes to meet just the just the radical views that you come across when people see the place for the first time or touch touch foot on the on the rock. Um, I think I I think I said earlier when you go up the steps, it is a very steep route, and you feel sometimes that the land is falling away to your right and to your left, and normal sort of perspectives change when you climb up such a steep route up to the up to the monastery. So. Um, it's kind of a place where 
what should I say? I think probably barriers are lifted and people are apt to tell you anything about themselves here. <laughs> this is one of the things you write when, uh, in terms of, of the people that you meet who visit uh, Skellig Michael, and I just love this. You write, each person I meet coming up the road in the morning from the shore becomes every man, every woman. Each solitary creature encountered, however insignificant, becomes every other living thing. Uh, uh, earlier you say this was a place for a quiet and often unspoken exploration of or sharing of a common humanity, the open doorways of the cells beckoning from another time, offering a glimpse of another way of seeing. It's a lovely way to, 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 to think of, of, of what it means to encounter people in a place like Skellig Michael versus what it would be like if you encountered them in a crowd in, I don't know, downtown Belfast <laughs> or uh, in Times Square in New York City. I mean, uh, just the, 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 the experience of encountering people is very different in this kind of setting. Yes, absolutely. You're, you're, you're absolutely correct. And it, it's kind of refreshing, really. Uh, um, you know, I spend a lot of time ashore as well, of course, and I have my life there. And um, I don't know, uh, well, I, I suppose I, it's not unusual to feel frustrated or, or despondent a bit about, uh, about humanity and what we're, what we're doing with ourselves and how we don't seem to be able to, first of all, just get on, uh, as opposed to put it simply and maybe naively, uh, and yet, um, it's interesting that everyone I meet here just about seems to have an openness about them that I think has probably been made copper fastened, uh, rather, by the boat journey, which can sometimes be arduous, or the climb, so that um, I suppose there's kind of a level playing field made by the, by the physical surroundings hmm. that um, that... that maybe maybe uh, sort of makes people see each other in a slightly different way. Certainly, it, it's done so for me. Right. And then on the other hand, you know, on days like this when, uh, when uh, you are alone, there is this beauty of solitude that, about which you also write in such striking fashion. This, this passage is among my favorites. Often no one else is there to stand beside me on the island, and the skies and surrounding rock are empty. The mind wanders. Links with the past are easily made. Ancient ways of viewing things come alive. The monks had stood there centuries before us, establishing their own lookout upon the beyond. And uh, we are envious of anybody who gets to uh, stand there and, uh, and experience it. I do want to take uh, a couple of minutes to talk about something that, in a sense, helped dramatically change uh, the kind of sort of public profile of Skellig Michael, and that occurred in 2014 with the filming of scenes from Star Wars The Force Awakens, scenes from that film uh, that were filmed on Skellig Michael. Uh, what can you tell us about how such a thing ever came about well the simple answer is i don't know <laughs> um, i i i was uh, on the island one day uh and uh I, I believe it was the year that the filming went on 2014 and 
and up came some people from the film company who told me what that, that this was afoot. So I, I, uh, I don't really know what uh, what was the decision making process was. Um, so I can't really answer. But um, uh, if, if the, the films were were partly filmed here, and uh, for for about two weeks uh, on two consecutive years, there was a lot of activity here. Um, uh, setting up for the filming, and then uh, the island was closed on three days each year for the actual filming uh, those years, back uh, in 14 and 15, yes. And uh, what did it feel like for you to have that kind of activity on Skellig Michael so drastically different from anything uh, you had experienced before. I mean, and did it feel like a kind of a jarring intrusion? Well, I mean, uh, just personally, yes, it did. Uh, I, I, uh, I, it was, it was pretty shocking to see uh, sort of all the trappings of modern technology being set up on the island. Uh, everyone was very respectful. I will say that. And um, you know, it's it, uh, it was it was something I had to get used to, and um, I was glad that I was here to help look out for uh, for different things here that most people might not have been aware of. For instance, bird nesting sites and things like that. That obviously uh, there was there were severe restrictions on with regard to any interference, and uh, so all of that worked worked quite well. Um, I I wouldn't have been personally happy with the decision to bring uh, any kind of commercial development out here. But on the other hand, uh, the story of Star Wars, I grew up with myself, a human being like everyone else, and I enjoyed the, the movies when I was young. And, uh, you know, I see, the, I see the appeal of, and particularly in youngsters, when they come up and, uh, and they want to know about uh, different aspects of where the film was, was made. And... Um, you know, it's a long time ago now. Actually, it's uh, it's it's moving on eight years ago, isn't it? And uh, and so I, I I've it's sort of become a part of the place in its own way. Right, and uh, of course, uh, I think a lot of us hearing about this reference now want to go back and uh, and see that film again and 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 watch for the scenes in which Skellig Michael is uh, the, the the striking backdrop. I realize we are just about done, but we have not really mentioned hardly at all the uh, incredible wildlife that is on Skellig Michael. Uh, Although I think you have made brief reference to the uh, enormous bird population there that uh, is uh, an unmistakable uh, part of the island and its ecosystem. Uh, Briefly describe to our listeners just... uh, the the wondrous array of creatures who make their home there and uh and what it is like to in a sense live among them yes well it is very much a part of living here um you know in a way the the island extends out over the ocean and into the ocean with its wildlife and uh, when you're approaching in the summertime there are thousands of large white North Atlantic gannets that are flying around the boats in great circles, and there are an equal number of 
puffins who are very colorful flying in the air about the island. And these little creatures, they go out to sea and they dive down 60 meters or so and come back up with beaks full of fish and bring them into little ones. And the, uh, the, the island is just alive with, with activity now. But over time, you realize that it's not restricted just to that. In the wintertime, these birds, the puffins go out in the North Atlantic, the little storm petrels fly way off south of the equator and are flittering around down there off the coast of Brazil. And in the springtime, there was a little switch that's turned on in all of their heads, hundreds of thousands of these birds. And they all come right back into the same little burrow or the same little place between stones to the same a mate, if he or she is still alive. And uh, they can live to be 30 or 40 years old. So I like to think that the skelligs in the wintertime is spread out all over the ocean. And in the summer only, it comes back to roost on this hard rock here. And it's magical because most people don't are not aware of that. They don't see a lot of these birds. Little storm petrels, people hardly ever see them. And yet, they are an indicator of, of something very, very vibrant that is going on in the world around us that's very precious and that, that, that are, is totally dependent on this, this rock jutting out off the Irish coast. Hmm. Do you foresee uh, Skellig Michael being a part of your life for, uh, for some time to come? Well, it'll always be a part of my life. Uh, I, I don't know how much longer I can work here, but I hope to work as long as I can. And um, regardless, I, I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to escape it. Mm-hmm. The book, again, is Returning Light, 30 Years on the Island of Skellig Michael. And the book, by the way, includes uh, some wonderful photographs. It is published by... Mariner, the author Robert L. Harris. Robert L. Harris, it was a pleasure to speak with you uh, about uh, your life and about the experiences you've had uh, uh, on Skellig Michael. Thank you so much and very, very best wishes to you. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure to speak with you.